If you have your Bibles today, I would appreciate it if you would turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. I started what I said was going to be a, a two-week series and discovered after only getting through the first point of three last week. This may, this may be a little longer than, than two weeks, probably three or, or four. Um, but it, I believe that there's a lot that speaks to us as it relates to our lives within this narrative of the story of Naaman. And I want to read the first half of that story to you. It's in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 5 of 2 Kings. And today we're just going to, we're following about how do we become believers? How does an individual become a believer? It starts out with, now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given the victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now the bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to see his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Father, I pray that you will take your word, the narrative of this story, and that not only would you teach us some things that were going on in Naaman's life, but that they would also apply to things that are going on in our life, that we might see you as we have sang today, that Jesus is the answer to everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
I mentioned last week as I got to the first point of this that I want you to know what Grace Assembly is all about. For those of you that are guests here and for those of you that may be watching online for the first time, here is what this church is all about. It's the idea that the essential message of Jesus Christ can change anything and can change anybody. The message of Jesus Christ can change anything and can change anybody. And what we have in this Old Testament lesson is probably uh, the most unique passage that talks about some of the things that can take place when people avail themselves to what God wants to do in their life. Very briefly, I don't want to spend a lot of time of what I preached last week, but I at least want to set for you the outline so that you can remember. And for those of you that weren't here, I would encourage you to go back to the website and and watch it online. But the, the history of this particular passage is this. A Syrian general goes to the God of Israel because he needs help. Syria and Israel at this particular time were bitter enemies of one another. It wouldn't be something that you would think about doing. There had to be reasons why a Syrian commander would choose to go to another country and seek their God for help. Because currently, Syria, the scripture tells us, had had the blessing of the Lord and were defeating the armies of Israel in battle. And the thought that a Syrian high official would go to an enemy's God for any kind of help is highly unlikely and improbable, but that is exactly what happens according to scripture. Nathan, who the scripture talks about here, is sophisticated. He is highly awarded. He is powerful. He is influential. And he goes to another country's God because his God has let him down. And doesn't feel as if he can do anything for me. And this to us as we read this, if we thoroughly understand the context, is about as shocking a story as we can get. In fact, it is as shocking a story in the Old Testament as the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is to Paul in the New Testament. That's how startling this is. And so we looked at the question of what brings Naaman? What brings Naaman's accomplished people? What brings incredibly unlikely people to seek the God of the Bible? And today we are going to continue on, but the first point that we looked at last week was why do people seek? And I believe that that there are two factors. First of all, people seek God when they discover that self-sufficiency is an illusion. They seek God when they discover that self-sufficiency is illusion. We started right at the top in the first verse that begins to describe all of the characteristics that Naaman had. He was a commander. He He was in the army. People obeyed his orders. He was great in the sight of the king. He was great in the sight of the men that were there. He's highly regarded. He he has all of the things that we would look for in a designer life going for him. And then at the very end of that verse, after talking about everything that anybody would want in life, it says, But one small problem, his body is falling apart because he has leprosy. He knew everybody that was somebody, loved and admired by everybody. His accomplishments were impressive, but he had leprosy. And it was in that disease that he first came to discover that self-sufficiency is an illusion. I don't know what kind of designer life that you have created for yourself. Don't know what kind of designer life that you have made or what you're aiming for, but I want you to know that the scripture indicates to us that something will ruin it. 
something will ruin it. There will come a moment of time when you will recognize that I could not control everything myself. It may be that somebody you love dies. It may be that there's a terrible illness of your own or that there is relational disappointment or betrayal or financial disaster may come upon you, but it tells us that no amount of wealth and no amount of power will make you impervious to the failings of this world. You cannot live in this world as self-sufficient. It's an illusion. The moment that you think that you've got everything together, something will happen and you will recognize not only that now I am not in control of my life, you will recognize that I was never in control of my life. And so we recognize this from Naaman as he recognized the reason that he would go to another God is suddenly he recognized everything he had was useless. He could not take care of himself. The second thing that we do in seeking God, the reasons that we do is we come to understand that the world does not have anything that can help you. The world does not have anything that can help you. We looked at Naaman's life and recognized that he was so familiar with the king that the king wrote him a personal letter and said, here, take this to the king of Israel. In other words, he went right over everybody's head, one king to another. He had connections. He knew the best of the best. He had lots of money, and we'll get into that as we go farther along, but he had everything that you can do. And if something could have been bought, he would have bought it. He had power and expertise. He was valiant in all of these things, skilled and competent. But what he recognized is that having everything that the world has to offer could not help him. We live in a world that needs to recognize that they are not self-sufficient and the world has nothing that can help them. And so he goes from one king to another king and the king tears his clothes and says, who do you think I am, God? And we looked last week at all the reasons why he thought the king was going to be in charge of and that the, the prophets and the temple employees were employees of that king. And he came away understanding that that was not the case, even though he was used to going to the top and he discovered that he was not able to buy his blessing. So we move from what it is that causes us to seek God so then how do we find God? What is there in this account that teaches us how do we find God? In fact, it tells us that not only did Naaman find God, or not only did he search for God, he actually found God, has an encounter with God that absolutely transformed his way of thinking. It transformed his, his faith. Everything about it changed when he met God. And I believe that there are two shifts in our thinking that, that must take place for us to find God. If we know that when our life is in jeopardy, when we have things happen to us and we realize we're not self-sufficient and it causes us to seek God, when we recognize that there's nothing that the world has that can help us, then what is it then when we're seeking him that helps us find him? Number one is this. You have to shift from wanting help from your suffering to wanting forgiveness for your sin. You have to shift from wanting help from your suffering to wanting forgiveness for your sin. And you have to make this shift because the beginning is that we are always going after God for what he can do to relieve our suffering. I raised my hand that I have many times in prayer said, God, the way that you can show me you love me is to take my pain away. God, the way that you show me you can love me is to change my situation. And that is oftentimes what causes us to begin to seek the Lord is we're looking for relief in some form or another. 
But somehow, when we get into that place where we are seeking God, there needs to be something that shifts inside of us, recognizing it might be suffering that leads us to God, but what we really need is not just relief, we need a savior. This particular shift is easier when you read the whole passage. And and next week, I'm going to share a little bit more about this. But at least let me just give you a little look at this in verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. Remember, the king gets this letter and thinks, this guy thinks that I can do something for him and I can't. He tore his robes and the prophet sends him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I want you to understand because this is really, really important. I don't believe that there are any words in scripture that are there just haphazardly. He didn't say, send Naaman to me and he will know that there's a faith healer in Israel. He didn't say, send Naaman to me and he will know that there is a magician in Israel. The prophet said, send him to me because what he really needs to know is that there's somebody that's going to speak the word of God to him. There's a prophet in Israel. A prophet was the bearer of truth. A a prophet was a preacher, someone who spoke the word of God and revealed the truth of God. In other words, Elisha recognizes that it's his illness that's sending him seeking, but what he really needs is an encounter with God. And I will speak the word to him that will lead him to that encounter with God. And this, what is recorded then becomes one of the most revolutionary things that any non-Israelite says in the Old Testament. And it's found in verse 15. Then Naaman, this is after he had dipped, then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and he said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now I know, after he obeys, and, and this is the transformation of his faith because of the word of the prophet that led him not just for a cure, but for a faith transformation. And the thing that's interesting about this is it, if only, if Naaman had only come in contact with another God, because he came from a very pluralistic society, so Naaman was used to serving a lot of gods, he could have said, You know what? After coming in contact with the God of Israel, I recognize that the God of Israel is a better healer than the God of Syria. He could have said, you know what? The God of Israel can heal leprosy and the God of Syria cannot. But you'll notice in his words, he's not comparing gods. He's not saying your God, this, my God, this. He's not acting like a Syrian. He's acting like somebody whose entire faith has been changed. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity of spending 14 days in the country of India. And I had a chance to speak in a lot of different cities and villages while I was there. As I was preparing to come home, I was in the airport at Calcutta. And as I was sitting there, a very well-dressed businessman in the garb of India came and sat down next to me because he recognized that I did not look like everybody else in the airport. And he began to speak to me in English because he wanted to practice his English. And so we began to talk and he asked me, he says, why are you in my country? And I said, I'm here on invitation. I've had a chance to visit several of your cities. And in each of those, we held crusades and we were speaking the truth about God, 
that how he loves us and died for us through Jesus Christ. And, and he asked me questions for about 30 minutes and I had a chance to share with him what it means to serve the one true God. At the end of that, he received a call that his flight was about ready to depart and he gets up and he turns and he looks at me and he bows and he says, this has been the first time in my life that I have ever had a conversation with a Christian. What you have told me about Jesus causes me to have to think maybe I need to add him to my God list. And then he gets on the airplane. And I remember thinking the, the huge disappointment that I had felt in my spirit that this pluralistic Hindu man, after having had the seed of the gospel planted in his life, felt like maybe I can just add him to the list. It would not have been uncommon for Naaman to do this. Naaman very easily could have at the end of all of this said, you know what, that is a powerful healer and I know now I'm going to the Jordan River every time I get sick. And I'm going to dip myself in that river because the God of Israel lives in that water. Lives in that. And, and aren't we the same if we find something that's worked for somebody else? We all want to do it. He could easily have said that. But there was a massive transformation in Naaman after his encounter with God that changed him. And he comes out of that water and he had had a lot of time to think as he's going back. And he said, there is no God in all the world, except the God of Israel. We look at that and go, what is going on? He went for a cure and he comes out of the water and he's making a brand new declaration of faith. His life changed, his whole faith changed. And it was because the nature of the cure drove out his false beliefs. The nature of the cure drove out his false beliefs. Because what Elisha was primarily after in his engagement with Naaman was not that Naaman would just be healed. Elisha knew as the voice of God, I need to speak to this man in such a way that what he receives in healing will be so powerful that it will affect this whole worldview. What he needs is to hear from God. What he doesn't need is just temporarily to have his suffering relieved. The suffering is what got his attention just like it does in all of our lives. But at a certain point, Nathan changes his view of things and recognize that while his pain drove him to seek God, it was his encounter with God that changed his life completely and his faith has changed. And Elisha was concerned all along that Nathan has an encounter with God and not just a healing. In fact, we see that theme throughout the whole Bible. Most of you know that there's this passage of scripture that's found in, in Mark chapter two, where Jesus is in a house and it is so packed with people that people can't get in. And so the lovely neighbors decided to destroy their people's roof and lower a man in front of Jesus. I'm glad I wasn't a homeowner of that particular house. And Jesus, and this paralyzed man is lowered by all of his friends right in front of Jesus. And for those of you that read your Bible and you know this story, the reason that those men lowered him before Jesus is because they wanted him to be healed of his paralyzation. And Jesus walks over to that man, probably didn't have to walk far since there's roof falling on his head. And he sees the man laying there. And Jesus says these words to him, which for us as we are readers and studiers of the word of God reveal his heart. And he says to the paralytic, the paralyzed man, son, 
your sins are forgiven. And his friends who are holding the rope up there going, uh, 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 Lord, lift his arm. He's paralyzed. The most urgent need that he has is his body. And Jesus says, no, no, you've misunderstood the most urgent need. The most urgent need is he needs an encounter with God that can forgive him of his sins. You see, the real problem that so many of us have, especially when we are in pain and suffering, is that we don't have a relationship with God. We only want the healer. We don't want the almighty. And he says, when you've had an encounter with God, it changes your faith and your desires go more than just for what he can do for you, but go for the relationship that he has with you. You see, Naaman's real problem was that his self-righteousness and his self-sufficiency had made himself, made him live for himself instead of God. And the cure that the prophet spoke into his life was to help him cure the real leprosy, which was the leprosy of his soul and not just of his body. Here's how we know that we've had an encounter with God. When we face those things which cause us to seek God, when we face relational betrayal, when we face disease, when we face hardship, when we face financial desire, uh, disaster, we don't act like those who don't know God because he is the solid rock, which is unmovable. Not saying that we are exempt from the disasters of this world because none of us are self-sufficient. The difference is if you've had a relationship with God, if you have met God, you don't respond the same way because we are not without hope. That's how we know that we have had a relation with God. The second shift that has to take place in Naaman and ultimately in us as well is that you have to shift to learn to trust in God's free grace. There was quite a spectacle that was mentioned in the scripture here as, as Naaman with his entourage shows up in front of what is probably a very modest prophet's house. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of having black limos pull up in front of your house and people jumping out to open the door of somebody that was in the back seat so that they might come and ring your doorbell or something of that nature. But this, this would be the sense that's going on here. Naaman had a rather large entourage. And so he's there with, with all kind of horses and chariots. There are chariots that are carrying people. There are chariots that are carrying treasure chests. There are chariots that are carrying wardrobe. And all of the servants that are with him. And so Naaman shows up in front of Elisha's house with this entourage and has an expectation about what's going to happen. Have any of you ever prayed expecting that God was going to do something the way you wanted him to? My hand is up. And the first thing that happens when this entourage shows up in front of Elisha's house is Elisha looks at his servants and said, you go outside. I'm not even going out. You go out there and here's the message that you give to him. And instantly, the first lesson that Naaman has to learn is the lesson of humility. He knew that he was popular, powerful, self-righteous, able. And the message that came when Elisha sends his servant out is that to encounter God, you have to step out of the way and humble yourself. 
And then the next thing that happens according to scripture is that Elisha doesn't do any showy things. He doesn't conjure anything up. It, it, and Naaman gets very angry because it tells us in scripture in verse 11 what he thought was going to happen. He says, I thought that he would surely come out to me. So there's the first one he's insulted that he didn't even have the prophet come out. And stand in front of me and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hands over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Does this not speak of somebody who is self-righteous and they are, they're used to having a show around them? He goes, this is what I thought would happen. That Elisha would come out and wave his jacket around. Woo, 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 woo. You're healed. And he would look at his servants and go, did you see that? Look at me. And God says, no, I'm not doing it your way. And Elisha does this for two reasons. First of all, he instantly wants to inform Naaman that your power and your position and your riches and the way that you think about yourself has got to change. It's nothing about you that's bringing your healing. And the second thing that he does by not coming out is I need you to know that the God of Israel is gonna work in this way and it's not me that is doing this. It's not the prophet, it is God. It's not my strength and I am not the source of the blessing. And immediately following that in verse 10, Elisha sends the messenger out and he tells him, here's what's gonna happen. You need to go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And Naaman who is standing there in front of all of his servants and in front of the huge entourage becomes enraged. He is furious about all of this. And we look at and say, why? Because he's saying, what did I come here for? I could have gone to my own rivers in Syria. They're much cleaner than the muddy Jordan. I could have done all of this at home. Why did I have to come here for that? And he begins to try to, to negotiate his healing with God. Lord, I want, I want to adjust the way that you do things. You see, I want to customize my obedience. I'm willing to dip. I'm going to do it in my river. I'm willing to obey what you want me to do, but I'm going to do it in my way. And folks, we live in a danger of that in our society. We live in the danger of hearing what God says to us to do and say, Lord, I'm going to customize that just a little bit to make my life easier. Because I, I choose not to be humble that much. And, and so we constantly do this. And Naaman had to recognize he was not in a position where he could customize God's work. You either obey or you don't. And so he's enraged. And in verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, listen, calm down, big guy. If the prophet had told you that you had to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And he's thinking, yes, that's what I expected. I wanted to come here and have him say, Naaman, I need you to slay the dragon. And Naaman would look around and go, yes, yes, I can do that. Show me the dragon, I'll bring you its fire-breathing head right back here. I'll put it on a platter for you, and I will have earned my right to be blessed. I will have earned my healing. Give me a task. Let me do something great. Look at this. I've, I've got the people to do this. And then after accomplishing some great task, he would come back and say, now, God, see what I have done. I have somehow earned what is about to be given to me. Give me a task. Let me prove my worthiness of this. 
And before we look at Naaman, by the way, Naaman is a great guy. Before we look at him and, and push him down or think less of him, you and I need to be careful because this idea of worthiness is deeply embedded in all of us. Let me tell you how it plays out in our lives. We might not think it at first, but how many times have we stood by the casket of a believer and thought, Lord, if it was up to me, I would have healed them because of what they can do for your kingdom. Lord, if you're looking for people to punish with sickness, then why is it that they who live so evilly are well and they who live so righteously are not? Or in our thinking, we begin to think, Lord, if you hold my righteousness and the evil in the balance, my righteousness would, would have outweighed it, and so I have somehow earned this. We, we begin to think, you know, when something bad happens, we, am I tithing? Lord, I'm just running through the list of all the things, you know, trying to make sure we've got all this in order because somehow we think in our obedience we have earned it, and it's deeply embedded in us. It just was wide open in Naaman's life. And Naaman is raging because he's thinking to himself, does this God have no standards? Does this God not know who I am? And of course we know that God had standards, but he's insulted, he's furious, he's raging. But what he needs to recognize is that in his encounter with God, in the humility that he comes with, gives God an open door to do something in his life. He was thinking, give me a great thing to do. But what he did not know is that the only great thing that could be done, he couldn't do. Somebody else did the great thing. And I believe that that's important for each of us to recognize this morning. As we begin to think, Lord, my life has earned some sort of grace, some sort of thoughtfulness, some sort of blessing here. And we recognize that we all come through the same muddy water of washing. We all come through the same way. God has unbelievable standards. He says, I am holy and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. He has incredibly high standards and the debt is so high and the deed <clears throat> is so great. It's one that Naaman with all of his riches could never pay. And therefore salvation must be provided by grace and therefore it must be free to everyone and there can be no difference in the way that we receive it. That's why when we read Romans 3.23, we understand it this way. For all have sinned. All of us may have a list of things that God has forgiven us for, and some of your lists may be long and some may be short, but all it took was one thing that gives us the lesson that we don't have the right to look down on one another at what was on their list and look over our nose in self-righteousness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. That means a child or a weakling or the immoral or the strength, the strong or the rich, the famous, the unknown, every one of them all have to come to Jesus the same way. And so what is being taught through Naaman is this. Salvation is received by grace. It is not achieved, it is received. It's not achieved, it's received. So many times I've had conversations, and so many of you have as well, 
with individuals and you were explaining to them how they might come to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you explain it that, listen, it's by free grace. All you have to do is come to him, acknowledge that he's the son of God, acknowledge what he has done, that he died for you, acknowledge your sins and with your lips, pray this prayer and allow him into your life. And they're looking at you going, it, it, it can't be that simple. It can't be that easy. And they begin to resist it because what that really means is that they have to come with nothing. And they're going, no, no, no. Give me something to do so that somehow I can feel I've earned this. But it can only be received. And it becomes, because it is so easy, it's become so hard. That's why not everybody will do it. So the servants look at him and say, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then humble yourself and do the easy thing, which really isn't easy at all. And they are saying that the greatest deed to receive salvation is to admit to, admit to yourself that there isn't any deed for you to do. There's nothing that you can do. It's too easy to accept the free grace of God. It's too hard because it causes us to have to look at ourselves in the eyes and recognize that there's nothing I bring to this except my need. And so he goes and he washes. And he's saved. And he's healed. And when he comes out of the water... He comes out not only with new skin, he comes out with a new faith. And we're going to explore what that looks like next week. But my question to you as I conclude this morning is this. Why was he able to receive it by grace? When he's asking, does God have no standards? Of course he has standards. And we all know the answer to that, that God is holy and he's righteous. And none of us can stand in, in comparison to that. But the great deed that Naaman wanted to do, he had to come to recognize that only God could do it for him. He was incapable of all of that. The great dragon that he wanted to, to slay, Jesus already slayed the dragon for us. Tells us in Re Revelation chapter 12 that the great dragon was thrown down. We are looking for a great deed. Jesus said, you couldn't do it, but I have done it for you. And so grace is open to you because I've slayed the dragon. And you live in the victory of that. So two brief words of application as the worship team comes. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I don't really need healing from my suffering. I need a new relationship with God. And number two, I can't earn it. I can only receive it by faith. And I understand it was achieved for me by Jesus Christ. And unless you make those two shifts, here's what's going to happen in your life. You will fluctuate between being religious and secular. When you're in need, you're going to run to God because you want, you want the healer. You want the blessing. And as soon as things get made right, you slide away and you slide back into that secular life where you think that you have things under control until you recognize you don't and you're constantly moving back and forth believing that his blessing to you provides you the ability to be self-sufficient and it doesn't and if you constantly live there then you never learn to stand on the solid rock in the middle of the waters as they come around in the middle of difficulty saying I no longer am flying back and forth I've now learned to plant my feet upon Jesus because of what he has done for me 
It doesn't mean that the waters aren't going to rise. It means that because of what he's done and because of what he has achieved for me, I receive his grace freely, but I will stand in it and live in it. And then as he begins to work within our life, we begin to recognize that our real problem, no matter what the running sore of your soul is, that's bringing you down and ruining your life. There was a little girl in this story and I can't wait to tell you about her next week. She's the hero of it all. Unlikely as all get out, who tells the commander of the army of Aram, I wanna to point to you to the prophet who can bring healing. And today we point to the prophet, priest and king in Jesus Christ, who is the one that can do what we cannot do. 